Good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is from the book of uh, Nahum in chapter 2. An attacker advances against you, uh, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel through destroyers, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots from though uh, from through um, <laughs> oh my, the chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon the rest. Nineveh is like a pool, and, it is, and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give away, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed through their young, where the lion and lionesses went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Thank you, Nick, for reading that somewhat strange passage for us this morning. Uh, now, I still remember watching the movie A Beautiful Mind for the first time. If anyone, so I see some head nods, okay, you're familiar with this movie, all right. I watched that movie for the first time uh, in my behavioral studies class in high school. Uh, my teacher actually later gave me a movie poster of A Beautiful Mind. Now, I don't know if I still have it. You know, maybe it's in my parents' basement somewhere. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, I don't think I still have it. The movie, if you've never seen it, uh, is based upon the life of the brilliant mathematician by the name of John Nash. He begins his academic career at Princeton, a prestigious university. Uh, he has a roommate named Charles Herman. Uh, now, John Nash would go on to make some pretty brilliant discoveries in the area of game theory. Uh, in the movie, he's eventually approached by a man named William Parcher, uh, who works for the Department of Defense uh, and who gives to John Nash a classified assignment. Now, that assignment uh, is to look for hidden patterns in magazines and newspapers and to uncover a super-secret code message of a Soviet plot uh, against the United States government. Now, 
where the story turns, and if you've never seen the movie, I'm sorry, this will spoil it. <laughs> um, but it's revealed that William Parcher isn't real, uh, and that John Nash uh, has been experiencing some schizophrenic delusions. And so there's this point where the movie turns and John Nash has this shed with all of these newspapers over it and there's lots of circles and scribbles, uh, which the whole movie you thought he was doing good work and he was making some progress, but at the end of the movie it just looks like the shed of a, a crazy person, right? Uh, what's even worse is that Nash's college roommate wasn't real the whole time either. Now, it's uh, really a moving portrayal of how real a delusion for a person can be. Now, I don't suffer from schizophrenia, so I can't relate to this. But to John Nash, these people in his life that were coming up to him were just as real as I am before you right now. Now, it really begs the question as you watch the movie, well, uh, am I living in a delusion too? <laughs> Maybe I uh, have some people in my life that aren't real. Obviously, that's not the case, but um, almost like a, um, a Truman Show <laughs> uh, kind of thing. Anyway, uh, how does this relate to Nahum chapter 2? Well, at this point, which Nick read for us, in Nahum chapter 2, uh, Assyria is living in a delusion. It's not a schizophrenic delusion like it was for John Nash. To, to Assyria, they're experiencing something that is very real. Assyria is the best. The best nation in the world at this point, or at least in this area of the world. They have the best army. They have the best city. They have the greatest amount of riches. But retribution, divine retribution from God, has come for them. And soon, all of that will be taken away from them. And it will be proven that it was really just a delusion. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll take a deeper look at Nahum chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Even passages of scripture, God, that seem a little confusing, have some weird things in them, God, they can still uh, teach us and reveal things about us and about our world in which we live. And so we thank you for that this morning, Father. We pray, God, that you would speak through your word to us, that we may uh, learn how to live in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll invite you to turn to Nahum chapter 2 in your Bibles if you haven't started doing that already. Uh, hopefully you remember where the book of Nahum is. Um, if you weren't with us last week, I'll give you a, a brief recap just to catch you up on where we are. Uh, we, last week we looked at Nahum chapter 1, uh, and we saw how both God's wrath and his goodness are both necessary to his character. And how his goodness and his wrath don't negate each other, but actually complement each other and combine to provide hope for his people. Now today we're moving on to chapter 2, uh, which I've split up into three parts for us this morning. If you have an outline, uh, you can see those there. First, we'll talk about delusions of grandeur in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll talk about from grandeur to groaning in verses 5 through 10. And then finally, we'll look at God's grand plan 
in verses 11 through 13. So let's start uh, with verses 1 through 4 this morning. Now God's message through the prophet Nahum here in chapter 2 begins with a warning to Nineveh about what is going to happen to their nation. God actually warns Nineveh that someone is coming to get them. An attacker is advancing against them. So to Nineveh, you better get ready because destruction is coming for you. Now, why would God warn Nineveh, even though their destruction is imminent and promised to happen? Really, this is an act of grace from God. Even though their destruction is being prophesied here, God is still giving them a warning about what is going to happen. Now, ultimately, no amount of guarding or watching or bracing or marshalling that we see in this chapter will be able to save them. Now, about 100 years earlier, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah had visited Nineveh to tell them to repent, and Nineveh had done so. Now, this uh, prophecy to Nineveh takes place about 100 years after that, and Nineveh had once again gone against their repentance and gone against God. Now, though all of this is going to happen to Assyria's capital city of Nineveh, God promises that the opposite will happen to Israel. Right, if you saw that brief message of hope there in Nineveh chapter 2 and in verse 2, God promises to Israel that he will restore their splendor. Though Assyria has laid Israel to waste and has ruined them, and that they were destroyed, God's judgment against Nineveh means that Israel will be delivered from them. Israel has been living in squalor for long enough. They've been oppressed and mistreated, and God is bringing it to an end. God is bringing judgment against Nineveh because Israel is his chosen people. Because God wants Israel to be the nation that they were supposed to be. An image of him meant to bring him glory. We've talked about this idea before. right? But they can't do that if they're being oppressed by an enemy nation. At this point in Nahum chapter 2, Israel doesn't have the splendor that God promises to them. Assyria has all of the splendor. In verse 3, Nahum describes what that splendor looks like. The might of their armies, shields, warriors, metal, chariots. Assyria has the best of the best, the best men, the best equipment, the best technology. Now chariots, as we read that, we're like, well, chariots aren't that big of a deal. What's so great about a chariot? Well, chariots in this day were like what tanks would be today. The best military advancements, destructive on the battlefield, symbols of strength. Now, why is God describing all of the strength that Nineveh has? Well, because it is a delusion. Assyria has all of this now, but one day soon it will be taken from them. They have built up for themselves might and power and glory and grandeur, but one day, soon, it will be no more. God will take it from them, and he will give it to his people Israel instead. 
Now, this is a delusion for Assyria because there is someone out there who has it even better than they do. Someone who is coming against them. More power, more grandeur. That nation is coming for them, but Assyria, they don't know it quite yet. Now, we can define a delusion as a misconception or a belief uh, or misbelief, rather, about what is real. And so to have a delusion of grandeur, if you're familiar with that phrase, is to have a misconception about your own importance. See, even if there wasn't another nation who is greater than Assyria, but there is, God would still be greater than them. See, Assyria isn't the best. They don't have the most power or strength or grandeur, even though they're fooling themselves into thinking that they do. As we saw last week, God's power against them is so much greater than their own strength. You see, when when we think about grandeur or something that is grand, when we think about who is the most powerful or the strongest, all we see is what is, right? We see the present circumstances. And God sees that as well. God sees the present. God sees the strength that Assyria has here in Nahum chapter 2. But God also sees what is coming. God sees the future. God knows how it will turn out in the end. And so in God's eyes, as he looks upon Nineveh and as he looks upon Assyria, he sees that really they have nothing because one day soon they will have nothing. In God's eyes, really Israel has everything because God has promised to restore them, to give them splendor, because they are his people. Now, so often we think that, well, God is blind to what is happening in the world. We get fooled into thinking that way, right? I'd like to remind you this morning that God sees everything. And God doesn't just see what is. He knows it. He also knows what is going to happen in the future. And he sees what is happening now, and he is doing something about it, whether we see it or not. He sees the atrocities that are committed by some in our world. God sees the deception and the evil and all who go against him. And though they may seem to be winning the victory now, God also sees the day in the future in which they will fall. And so I think what God wants for us and what we're supposed to get out of this first section is that God wants us to see the world how he sees it with his future plan in mind. And he wants us to know that his future plan for us is just as real as our present circumstances are. The splendor that God promises to Israel in verse 2 is just as real as the strength of Assyria seems to be. So for those like Israel, who may be experiencing destruction and ruin to those who are being oppressed in our world right now. One day, as God promises, restoration will come for you. And you will have the splendor that he promises. A question, really, from this first section is, what is the splendor that you are seeking after? Is it your own? Or is it the splendor that God has promised to you? 
Is it the splendor that God describes that Assyria has? Power, strength, but fading strength? Or is it the strength that God promises to give to you? See, if the splendor that you're seeking after isn't the splendor that God has promised to you, then it is a delusion. You could have the most riches or the most power or the most influence, but it may not last, and it could be taken away in an instant. And then what? Right? What is there after that? Now, the answer to that that we see in the next section verses 5 through 10, is, well, nothing. If it isn't God's splendor, then you'll be left with nothing. And this is what God promises in the fall of Nineveh. And so Nahum describes what the fall of Nineveh will look like. It's a pretty grim picture for them. Nineveh's troops struggle to defend the city. Eventually, the gates give way. The palace is destroyed. Nineveh is exiled and carried away. The slaves in the city groan, taken away by yet another captor. Nineveh's power is slowly drained. No one comes to help them. And Nineveh is plundered and pillaged, stripped of everything that they have until there is nothing left. Now, what's ironic about this picture that Nahum is painting here, is that this is exactly what Nineveh has done to other nations as they have conquered them. See, Assyria were the ones who broke down gates and destroyed palaces. Assyria were the ones who exiled people and took slaves. Assyria were the ones who drained the power of others. They were the ones who had plundered and pillaged until there was nothing left for other people. You see, this is the cycle of warfare, when nation turns against nation. Nothing is ever truly won or truly lost. It merely changes hands from one to another. Nineveh has great riches that it has taken from other people, and now others will come in and take Nineveh's riches. Nothing ever changes, right? It, it never ends. It's just a vicious cycle. You see, this is why Nineveh's strength and power and grandeur are a delusion. Because someone else would come in and do unto them as they have done to others. There's an Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus. You're probably familiar with this one. It goes by the name of an eye for an eye. Here's the passage of scripture that that comes from. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has afflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution. Whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. So this is where this comes from. You might be wondering, well, didn't Jesus tell us in the New Testament not to take an eye for an eye? Yes, but Jesus was talking about how we should not take justice into our own hands because we are not God. 
But Nahum chapter 2 is talking about God taking justice into his own hands. The Old Testament law is a reflection of God's character. And here, justice is in the hands of the Lord. Nahum chapter 1 said that God is slow to anger. It has taken him a long time to get to this point. He doesn't want to pour out his judgment on Nineveh, but they have caused him to do so. When he pours out his judgment, this is how he does it. So this is really a warning, not just to Nineveh, but to all nations that exist on the earth. To all who seek after their own grandeur. To all who may do evil in the eyes of the Lord. To Nazi Germany in World War II. What you have done to others, it will be done to you. To Hamas over in the Middle East right now. What you have done to others, it will be done to you. But even to the United States, what you have done to others, it will be done to you. You see, none are immune to delusions of grandeur. None are immune to relying on their own power and strength. You see, the key to getting rid of a delusion in your mind is to remind yourself of what is true and what is real. This is what happens in a beautiful mind when it is revealed to John Nash that everything that he has been believing is a facade and that those people aren't real. So here is what is true. God is in control and God is sovereign over all of creation. God has authority over all presidents, kings, and prime ministers. God can raise up any nation and he can bring any nation down. And as much as we may grumble against that, as much as we may want our nation to be the best, very quickly, as we see here, God can take us from grandeur down to groaning. If the whole time our grandeur was a delusion, if the whole time it was really more about us than it ever was about God, our fall will be great. I have to remember why God is punishing Assyria here. We talked about this last week. They were plotting against him. They elevated themselves to God's place. They worshipped idols instead of worshipping him. They willingly disobeyed what God had commanded them to do. They had repented before Jonah a hundred years before, but now they have gone against him again. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work to improve our nation, because we should. But if we don't want to repeat the mistakes of Assyria, if we don't want our country to go down the drain as it seems to be going, then we need to start with repentance. You see, this is what would have solved all of Assyria's problems, was repentance. Repentance means acknowledging how we have wronged God in the past, the ways in which we have not represented him well, and we have gone against him. But repentance also means beginning to live rightly with God in the present. And I believe that this starts with us as a church, as individual followers of Jesus. Now, I am very quick 
to call our nation to repentance. And I am very quick to point out the things that are going wrong in our nation. But we can't call our nation to repentance if we haven't repented ourselves. We can't call people to do something that we ourselves haven't done. See, our natural reaction to the state of our nation at this point is grumbling, right? I like to grumble. I'm guilty of this. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. No amount of grumbling is going to get us anywhere. Only personal repentance that leads to corporate repentance, that leads then to national repentance. I believe this starts with the church. If we want to change our nation, then we have to live out these things. Now here are four practical steps from an article that I read this week. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. If you're thinking about how to do this practically, how to live this next year in light of these things, uh, here's step number one. Do the right thing, because doing the right thing still matters, but also trust God with the outcome, whatever the outcome is. Number two, accept the outcome, whatever it is, as God's sovereign plan. Even if our nation continues to go down the drain, then you have to accept that as God's will for us. Doesn't mean you don't work against it, but that's what's happening. Step three, check the facts. Seek what God says in his word over what any one person might be saying. And fourth, pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders, but also pray for those who are around you. I don't want to see our nation fall. I don't want to see what happened to Nineveh and to Assyria happen to the United States of America. But if our posture isn't repentance, and if we don't turn towards God, this just might be the case for us. Now in this last section, in verses 11 through 13, Nahum begins to recount the aftermath of the fall of Nineveh. So, even though the fall of Nineveh has been prophesied, it hasn't quite happened yet, but here we still have a picture of what will happen afterwards for them. Nahum does this by asking some rhetorical questions. He says, where is the lion's den? Where did the lions go? Now, he's using the imagery of lions, their cubs hunting, and their dens to represent Nineveh and Assyria. Assyria and its capital, Nineveh, as we've been saying, were the top dog, the apex predator of the Middle East at this time. And for a while, they killed at will, and they filled their den. Now, this imagery is one that people, the original audience, would have understood better than we do. But now, Assyria is no more. Now, this imagery should remind us of the story from Daniel that we'll talk about later this year where God literally shut the mouths of the lions when Daniel was put in the lion's den. Once again, God has power over all, and even those who appear to be the top dog are no match for him. See, this chapter ends 
not with Nahum's voice, but with God speaking directly to Nineveh. Here's what he says. I am against you. And this is a scary thought (laughs) for God to say this to you. God is against them because they have gone against everything that God created humanity to be. The reason Nahum compares them to lions is because they haven't acted how humans were meant to act. And so they have defied God's purpose for humanity. They have destroyed God's people, the nation of Israel. Now God is setting them free. And so here we have God's grand plan for the world on full display. God is going to snuff out Assyria. They will be no more. But he will raise up another nation. And this nation really would be worse than Assyria in many ways. We know from history that this nation was Babylon. God would snuff out Babylon as well. But here is the good news. God is raising up a new nation as he said in verse 2. And that nation will be the exact opposite of what Assyria or Babylon were. So when Nahum says in verse 2, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, yes, he is talking about Israel, but he's also prophesying about who would come out of Israel. A new nation. When Jesus said, repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so we have to contrast the nation that Jesus instituted, the kingdom of heaven, with all earthly nations, but with Assyria and with the city of Nineveh. In Jesus' nation, in the kingdom of heaven, which he has said has come near, things look very different from the foreign policy that we see present here in Nahum chapter 2. Jesus' nation has grandeur, but it's not a delusion. It's more real than anything ever could be. Though it cannot be seen, that doesn't make it any less real. Though it can't be seen, it can be felt. Jesus' nation has the only true grandeur that a nation can have, and that Grandeur cannot be taken away from it. See, Jesus' nation, the kingdom of heaven, its grandeur came not by taking the grandeur of another, not by plundering or pillaging, but instead by giving its grandeur up. It seems backwards. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven by conquering it, but instead by letting it conquer you. You don't get what the kingdom of heaven can give you by plundering it, but instead by letting it plunder you of everything else in your life. You see, this is where the repentance that I talked about earlier leads us. The nation, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to institute, operates by entirely different rules than all earthly nations. See, this nation is the nation that you and I belong to if we are followers of Jesus. We belong to the kingdom of heaven first and foremost before we belong to any nation on the earth. See, God dealt with Assyria how they have dealt with others. An eye for an eye. This was still true 
on the cross, when Jesus took the weight of God's judgment upon himself. But the thing is, Jesus had an eye taken for an eye that he did not take from someone else. The cross seems to not be just, but that's the point. God poured out his wrath on someone who did not deserve it, so that all could be set free from his wrath. In Jesus, God does not deal with us how we deserve. He does not take an eye for an eye from us, but he offers grace to us instead. See, all of us, like the nation of Assyria, like the city of Nineveh, have wronged God in our own way. And all of us are deserving of judgment, just as Assyria is. But God, in his grace, has chosen to deal with us in a way that we don't deserve. Instead, he dealt with his son in a way that his son didn't deserve so that we could be spared from what we deserve. See, this is why we have to spend time in the prophets. Because they help us to understand the world in which we live, to understand what might be happening around us, and for us to see. It's really nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. We need to see God's wrath in its fullness, poured out, upon the city of Nineveh. Because if we never fully understand the wrath of God, we will never fully understand the grace of God. If we never fully understand the grace of God, we will never have true joy in our lives. We will never fully understand God's love for us. We will never be able to truly show God's love to others. See, these are the things that are important in the nation, the kingdom of heaven that we belong to. And God's grandeur, the kingdom of heaven, is not a delusion. God is the most grand, and he is the most glorious. And in the kingdom of heaven, if you've read some of what it looks like, no one can truly describe it, but we will see it in its fullness one day. Because God has this grace for us. His grace is real. It's not a delusion. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you this morning for this grace. We thank you for the kingdom of heaven that you have welcomed us into as your people. We thank you that the grandeur, the grandness of that kingdom will never pass away. God, so often in our lives we're faced with temporary things, things that make us think that they're the most important. But God, at the end of the day, everything else will fade away. And we'll just be left with you. May we be ready for that day that day when we will meet you face to face. We will see your kingdom in its fullness and we'll be welcomed in. May that be just as real for us today as it will be on that day. 
May we see the things that you have promised to us in the future as just as real as the things that we see in front of us right now. May we take hold of your promise. May we take hold of the identity that you have given to us. May that give us hope, even in the midst of a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name.